Welcome to the Human Centered Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Kulmahe. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades, and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Welcome to another episode of the Human Centered Leadership Podcast and I have an incredible guest for you today, all the way from the other side of the world. Uh, CJ is somebody who I met uh, when I was in Windsor Castle about a month ago. In fact, it was just a few weeks before Her Majesty the Queen passed away. Um, So it's become an even more poignant uh, occasion for me. Uh, But CJ and I are both uh, members of the Society of Leadership Fellows, which is based in Windsor Castle. It's an incredible society of uh, leaders and we have some really deep conversations around leadership much the same as the conversations that we have on this podcast but can you just imagine a whole group of leaders who are like values who have that depth of philosophy around what leadership really is getting together on a regular occasion i mean i i i can't i can't imagine a better environment to be in and every time i walk away from there i'm blown away on the last occasion when i went uh, i stopped overnight and uh, i was driving back first thing in the morning so I'm there with my little suitcase uh, toddling along in the grounds of Windsor Castle trying to get to my car noticed that one of the gates were closed so I had to walk around the long way around and I noticed this chap taking photographs and uh, we ended up chatting and it turned out that uh, CJ was also at the same event that I was at and we ended up as I was walking to my car having a very very deep conversation and CJ blew my mind he blew my mind Uh, He has been in the Australian Navy for 11 years, literally has seen the world, which is an incredible experience in and of its own. Um, Knows a lot about relationship building because when you're stuck on a ship with a a limited number of people for goodness knows how many months at a time, you have to get good at building relationships. He's worked in the offshore oil and gas mining industry, again, stuck in a singular isolated place with a limited number of people. You've got to get good at building relationships. He worked in the part-time in the Merchant Navy. Uh, uh, But for the last few years, he has worked on an incredible project, which I'm going to let him explain in a short while. But the good news is, uh, just a few days ago, he was um, elected as the chairman of the Sea Heritage Foundation. That's the foundation that uh, CJ has been working on for so many years. Uh, CJ, I want to say welcome. Thank you. Thank you for taking time out. I have no idea what time it is in Australia where you are right now, but thanks for taking time out to join us on the podcast today. Thank you, Carl. Uh, Good morning. Good evening, everybody. It's... uh... It is quarter to eight in the evening in Sydney on Thursday evening. Not too bad then, not too bad for either you or for me. I mean, it's, it's great for me because it's like 10 o'clock in the morning or 11 o'clock in the morning <laughs> around here. Uh, CJ, um, just tell me about your experiences in the Navy, in the Merchant Navy and in, in the oil and gas mining industries because 
the moment I think of those, I'm thinking about isolated places where you're away from society, but you're living with a limited number of people. You must have to get really, really good at building relationships. Yes. Um, look, I joined the Navy when I was 17, so I, I was underage when I joined. My parents actually had to give permission for me to join the Navy. Mm-hmm. But uh, I had my heart set on that since I was, I was very young. So, uh, yeah, look, uh, join the Navy, see the world, uh, as the poster says. Um, I was very fortunate to uh, go to sea very, very quickly, straight after my basic training, and uh, literally spent a good eight years of my service uh, at, at sea. So it was great, I had a ball. Um, uh, spent time on three major fleet units, traveled all through the Asia Pacific uh, areas, uh, uh, many countries yeah look it was great wow. it gave me the ability to well the navy gave me a lot of those foundation skills you don't realize that they're giving you when they're teaching you to do everything from iron your shirt to fold your bed to little smiley faces in your socks which just oh my goodness that resonates with me today <laughs> i mean i still make my bed now um i still iron all the clothes in the house right now um if my if on the odd occasion my wife irons my shirts, I have to force myself not to tut. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because I was like you, I joined the police cadets in, at the age of uh, sixteen, and my life was all about you know early morning drills and learning to make your bed properly and uh, so forth and so Very on. Very much so. So I get that. Yeah, looking at at the, looking back at it now, um, it, it all makes sense. But I, I do recall sort of standing there, you know, being showing how to sew a button I'm thinking oh really do I need to know this like seriously uh, can we go play can we do boats can we do something else <laughs> but um, you know they're very structured in their approach to doing everything I mean they taught you to do everything from iron to wash yourself um, and very quickly you sort of came to realise that you're not an individual you're part of a team and you're an important link in that chain and um, no matter what job you had you're as important as a person beside you so if um, something went wrong and you couldn't do your job um, you're going to let the team down. So, um, yeah, I, I sort of became aware very quickly that um, I was an important person, even though I was a sailor. On a ship, um, you're a critical member of the team. So, uh, look, it was good. It, it, it made me grow up very quickly. I joined at 17, so I was very young. Um, but I sort of grew up very quickly. They give you responsibility early, and your leadership journey starts from then. So, yeah, it was a very exciting time in my life. That's interesting what you just said there about, you know, uh, your leadership journey starts right there. I think there's so much truth in that, you know. You may not have had a leadership rank or status or role, but you had to demonstrate leadership because even if it's just self-leadership, you had to demonstrate some level of responsibility uh, from a very, very early age. I resonate so strongly with that with my experiences in the police service. I think you've already said that you had to grow very quickly. Do you think that you lost out uh, by doing that or do you think that's that's improved your life going forward? I think it's definitely improved my life. I'm, I'm a bit of an old soul. Um, um, you know, my passion for ships in the military started when I was very young. So I used to love going to my grandparents' house and uh, I would stay up late at night watching war movies with grandpa um, and then join cadets as soon as I could and that sort of flowed straight on into the military. So um, I was very eager to accept the responsibility of you know serving my country and serving the Queen and uh, they, they give you a choice to swear allegiance to the Queen or to, um, to the Bible. So um, 
pastoral allegiance to Her Majesty, and you know, I was very proud to have done so. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, yeah, look, it was definitely in, in reflection. You get to work with a lot of people, and especially being in Australia, we have a lot of regional neighbours that we work very closely with. So um, almost every time you would put to sea, you were working with a neighbouring country, whether it be New Zealand, PNG, uh, Singapore, Malaysia. Uh, You're always in company with other ships from other nations. So um, again, very early on, I learned the importance of building relationships, working with culturally diverse groups, uh, learning about different cultures and, and appreciating their perspective on life. Um, and that's definitely benefited what I'm doing now and the work that I've done in the Merchant Navy and uh, the offshore industry since. It's just incredible. When I just sort of, uh, in my own mind's eye, just imagine the, the things that you've seen, the people that you've met and the places that you've visit, visited, how can anybody walk away without without having widened their horizon, you know, and raise their awareness of the ability to connect with people irrespective of their cultures. So, I mean, all of that has led you to doing the work that you're doing right now at the Sea Heritage Foundation. Do you want to just tell us a, a, a bit about the Sea Heritage Foundation? Because when we talked about it at Windsor Castle, it literally blew my mind. I just thought, what an incredible initiative. It's a, it's a very exciting project. So the Sea Heritage Foundation owns and manages a former lighthouse tender called the MV Cape Don. So uh, the UK still has a lighthouse service. Uh, in Australia, um, between 1900 and 1990, all our navigational aids and sea, sea lanes, um, lighthouses, uh, were looked after by the Commonwealth Lighthouse Service. So government organisations similar to Tr- Trinity House that you guys still have. Um, and we had three ships that were big lighthouse tenders and that's actually the ship on the back corner over there. They were big white ships and they undertook uh, um, a lot of duties to do, not only with looking after all the navigation lanes and lighthouses, but they would also build structures. So at the front of the the ship's 74 metres long, it's got 50 cabins, it was like a mini liner. Um, And inside it's like a time capsule. Just to clarify for the audience, you mentioned lighthouses, but what we're actually talking about here is a ship, isn't it? That's right, yeah. So this ship was a lighthouse tender. So every three months they would have to change a lighthouse keeper uh, families out. So the ship would spend on average 10 months, 9 to 10 months at sea a year. And this ship looked after everything from Darwin in northern Australia all the way down to Tasmania. So we're talking thousands of miles. Incredible. Yeah. Um, And very extreme temperatures from Darwin, you know, being anywhere from 35 to 40 degrees in summer down to the Southern Ocean where it gets to minus, minus five. Um, so yeah, very, very different, different temperature settings. Um, so the ship, um, every three months they would uh, change the lighthouse crews. So uh, because families would often listen, uh, live in these, these lighthouses as well in remote areas, the ships would uh, take on all the new crews and then they'd, they'd do their, their runs. So they'd swap out the crews and, uh, and bring the families back. So they'd do three-month rotations. And depending on what was happening, the, uh, they'd have scientists or they'd be training other, other crews. The ships all used to, used to teach the, our Antarctic crews how to operate amphibious uh, vehicles, which our, our ships had. The funny thing is, this is 60s technology that our Antarctic crews are still using today in Antarctica because um, the technology is so robust they can't find anything to replace it. They call them larks. Um, 
there's just nothing to replace them. Yeah, which is quite ironic that, you know, something they were using in 63, they're still using in um, 2022. Um, so the project now, the ship was retired in 1990 once the government automated all the lighthouses, and then the ship was sold and became a ferry in the Pacific. At the end of the 1990s, the uh, owner at the time stopped paying his bills, and the ship was abandoned in Sydney Harbour. Right. We'll go back in time to World War II, uh, there was a gentleman who was a Royal Naval Intelligence Officer based in Singapore. When Singapore fell, he was evacuated to Sydney um, and spent the rest of the war working at the Naval Base in Sydney um, in intelligence. At the end of the war, he was sent back to Singapore. But as you do in time of war, um, he fell in love with a lovely Australian lady and um, they got married. So they moved to Singapore. They had two, uh, uh, two boys who were sent to boarding school back in Australia. So every school holidays, they would travel on these these old ships between Singapore and Australia. Um, anyway, fast forward, um, Derek Emerson Elliott uh, becomes a lawyer, very successful lawyer, uh, ends up as a QC in Canberra, uh, has a very successful career, but uh, had this, this ongoing love of, of ships in the sea. So he finds out from a friend that there's this ship looking very sad and sorry for itself in Sydney Harbour. So he drives up to... Uh, to Sydney from Canberra, which is about a three, three hour drive, three, four hours, and um, uh, gets on the harbour, goes, finds the ship and goes, oh wow, that's that's fantastic, what's happening with that? So he calls the government up and asks them and they say, well, you too can be the proud owner of a, of a ship if you pay the, the port fees that are owed. So he did, he wrote them a cheque on the spot and um, <laughs> they handed him the keys to the ship. Uh, <laughs> so she was in a bit of a sad state of repair because it had been left for a number of years. Can you just imagine CJ? If he'd have gone home to his wife and said, oh, did you have a good day? Yeah, I've had a brilliant day. I've just bought a ship. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So uh, he got all his friends together in Canberra, threw them all in cars. They all drove up and um, and turned up at this ship for the first time. And look, she was in a very sad state. She was listing. Uh, she had water in the bilge. Um, uh, there was rubbish all through the ship. It had been, a squatters had been staying on board. So she was in the right state of disrepair. So they, uh, they started cleaning the ship out. So since 2004, Derek created the Sea Heritage Foundation, which owns and manages the ship. So he donated the ship to the foundation and uh, he created the MV Cape Don Society, which is the volunteers that uh, maintain and restore the ship. Um, and then fast forward to uh, nearly three years ago, uh, when I got involved with the project, uh, they were looking for uh, people with a bit of a maritime or a naval background to help get the ship back um, uh, into some routine. So I uh, was told about the ship and I thought, wow, this has got some great history. So I'm um, right up my alley. So got in touch with uh, uh, the shipkeeper, went and uh, had a chat and then met some guys from the crew. Uh, then met a couple of the guys off the board, so I started getting involved and then little by little uh, got more involved and then um, starting asking some questions about how they were intending to get the ship to, you know, be fully restored and uh, whatnot. And that led to um, me realising that we needed routines and some documentation wasn't in place and um, that we needed to get organised. So um, uh, I wrote a draft strategic plan uh, outlining how we could uh, get from A to B. And, uh, and then we started talking about what the ship could actually do to increase revenue because museums traditionally don't make money. So we thought to be a self-sustaining entity, we, we need to be bringing some money in the door. So what are we gonna do? So uh, we looked at what the ship used to do. 
uh, one of which was training. And the ship has 50 cabins on board, so she's quite spacious. So the board was thinking, if we could do something that could tap in the ship's history and, and that could also now contribute to its future, that that would be ideal. So we looked at training. Um, there's lots of people doing maritime training, but there's not a lot of places doing indigenous training. So we thought, okay, let's look into that. So I contacted the Australian Statistic, uh, Bureau of Statistics and um, they actually couldn't answer the questions that I had for them because we didn't have a lot of the data. So then I started asking more questions about, well, why don't we have the data? And um, so that led to, you know, us sort of collaborating over six months and between a lot of flights up and down around the place, um, talking to a lot of people, talking to Bureau of Statistics, um, they were then able to uh, get some numbers together. So out of 18,000 people employed in the maritime industry in Australia, 399 were Indigenous. So it was at that point we went, okay, that's not right and that's not good enough. That's far from acceptable considering we're an island nation um, and we're reliant on maritime industry. Everything comes on a boat. 90% of our import and export uh, comes to Australia on, on a ship. So then uh, we got back in touch with, with the government. And the Australian government has this thing called Close the Gap and it's where the government has formally committed to improving social and economic uh, outcomes for Indigenous people. One of those, those um, points is education. So we looked at that, we tried to understand where we could um, make positive change by consulting with people from the Indigenous community. We formed an Indigenous Advisory Committee and um, um, two of the, the guys that got involved with that are actually ex-Navy and um, I was doing a course because I'm, I'm pretty passionate about this. It's um, it's like a second full-time job almost. But uh, I was making all these phone calls trying to get in touch with the industry because we wanted to create um, employment. We wanted to give people education and then facilitate employment for them because that's where we're going to get the real economic, social economic change from ongoing employment. So I was calling all these companies and I was not getting anywhere and I was getting really frustrated with it. So one night, you know, it was probably about one o'clock in the morning because I'm I'm studying part-time in between all this and working full-time. So, you know, I was sort of nodding off when I was studying and then um, something flashed up um, on the screen and it was for the Prince's Trust. And I'm like, oh, Prince's Trust. So anyway, so I clicked on it and it was about these veterans programs that they run. So anyway, I looked into it a little bit and I thought, hmm, that's interesting. Um, and it was all about uh, helping give veterans a leg up um, with business. So okay. I could do with some help. So I got in touch with them. Anyway, I ended up doing a couple of their programs, which were just incredible, amazing. Um, and it gave me the confidence and the skills that I was lacking to actually start getting appointments with people um, that I wasn't previously. So uh, we started meeting with people and telling them what we're doing and why we're doing it. And because um, people were saying, well, why, why are you doing this? And the answer is pretty simple. That's not good enough. 18,000 people, less than 400 are indigenous. We're an island nation. Indigenous Australians have a rich connection to the sea because it was a food source for them. And here we are, um, you know, we're a first world country. Um, we have an incredible indigenous um, population here. Um, and what we identified was we weren't just giving them um, um, enough opportunity to do these programs. We were giving them the wrong programs to do. So, 
talking to our partners and um, the TAFE, uh, New South Wales Indigenous Engagement Team, who have been amazing, uh, we've been working together to develop this course. So the course we're developing is targeted to Indigenous people. Um, we've integrated all these cultural elements to it, so it's not just about learning how to be a sailor, they're learning all these cultural elements within the course. Because um, like the Navy, um, Navy is a tribal culture, um, and same as Indigenous people. Uh, it's a tribal culture. Um, Navy is all about teams and supporting each other. Same with um, Indigenous communities. They're very family and community orientated. So there's a lot of synergies there that you wouldn't think that would be there. Um, and, you know, I got a lot from the Navy. It gave me um, a lot of life skills that I still use to this day. I'm very dedicated about uh, what I do. If I say I'm going to do something, I have to do it. I have to follow through and I create all these, you know, these little things to make myself follow through. Um, but most of all, um, when I left, um, I missed that feeling of support and family that was around. You never needed to want for anything because your mates were behind you 24-7. If you needed something similar to the police force probably, um, you always had someone to go to. But when you leave that that service, it's no longer there, and then you realise, oh wow, um, and I sort of longed for that. Do you know what, CJ, uh, that is one of the biggest learning curves for me, uh, and you're so right, you know, when you are in any kind of uniformed organisation, military, police, any of the emergency services, you're in this sort of a supportive bubble, aren't you? You've got, you've got to have each other's backs, it is a community, you have to build trust, you have to know each other. Uh, so you sort of feel relatively safe, but when you leave that environment and you're out in this big wide world, suddenly you feel very much alone. I mean, you might be surrounded by thousands of people, but you feel very much alone. Yeah, exactly. Um, and one of the biggest things that I found was trust, because you trust everyone in the military. Yeah. So I just applied that same principle in civilian life and learnt the hard way that you can't trust everybody the same way that you did uh, on, on a ship. I, I learned that in business. Yeah, yeah, and it, it costs <laughs> badly, unfortunately. I learned the hard way. <laughs> on, on a ship, you can ask anyone in the crew to do something for you, to give you a hand with something, and they'll do it, and you can trust them. Um, I did the same thing on the outside and, um, and, and in business and, and lost, lost quite a bit of money because uh, people, you know, they don't always follow through. Yeah. So what we've wanted to do with this course is provide not the same um, as what the Navy did, but take those same elements from that, the, the, the team building and that tribal sort of culture um, and give that to our Indigenous students. So they're not just a student, they're not just an individual, they're part of a team and they're going to have a job and a career within the maritime industry where it's all about being part of a team um, and that you're, imp you're important no matter what your job is. Um, you're as important as a person on the bridge as a guy in the engine room as a guy in the kitchen because I love this. Um, in the navy in the merchant navy you don't just do one job you have several jobs um, if there's a fire on the ship you know how to how to put the fire out so there's all these different elements that um, we're applying into this course so what we're doing is we're bringing um, uh, everybody onto the ship for all their practical training. All the theory will be done ashore. Mm -hmm. So the North Sydney City Council has been amazing. We have a really good relationship with uh, with them and the Mayor has just been incredibly supportive. She's fantastic. So um, there's the ship's birth at the old coal loader terminal in Waverton. That's been converted into a community space. So the ship is birthed there and our theory components will be run in the old mess hall at the coal loader there. And in the afternoons, uh, the students mm -hmm. would do all the practical on board. So what we're doing with the ship, even though she's not operational anymore, 
you know, 70, 75% of all the machinery still functions and it's like a time capsule. So they're coming onto the ship and they're going to go into the same routines that they would on a charter vessel or a fishing vessel or a, or a ship. Um, we can replicate that all of that on board our ship without the dangers of actually being at sea. So they get a very lifelike experience in the safety of Sydney Harbour. I liken that to like being in a very immersive, simulated environment, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, very much so. Um, and this is a first element of uh, uh, a combined integrated program. So um, when they're on the ship, they have to be fed. So the maritime industry needs cooks and stewards. So our long-term plan is that we'll be having Indigenous students cook for Indigenous sailors on board the ship but they also need to be accommodated so while they're on the ship uh, learning uh, and eating um, they'll be accommodated so we're going to have indigenous uh, hospitality students um, run the ship uh, as a hotel so we'll have three integrated programs on board the ship um, uh, eventually um, all integrated all dependent on one another and again we're replicating that same environment as a real ship would have. So they're going to get so much more out of this course than just learning how to be a sailor or to throw a line or, you know, what navigational aids and uh, uh, mean. Um, they're going to learn teamwork. They're going to learn all, of, all about self, self-awareness, um, uh, teamwork, uh, the maritime industry, learn more about cultural significance um, within the maritime industry um, and how them as an individual um, are an important part of a larger, larger maritime family. CJ, I mean, I'm I'm blown away. I'm blown away by what you're describing here. And in essence, uh, these students who are going to be coming to you. Are going to learn, as you say, way beyond what ordinarily you might think they are going to learn about, the, you know, the, the the sort of naval industry. They're going to be learning some real personal, interpersonal skills, leadership skills, uh, decision making skills. But it's also uh, around this applying across several industries. You've talked about hotel industry there. You've talked about cooking. You've talked about maybe maintenance. I don't know. Uh, but so many other skills that they're going to be taking away from there that could be applied to so many other industries, not just within the naval environment. Precisely. And there's life skills built into all this. So they're learning, learning things when they're, they don't realize they're learning things, which is the best part of it. And the Prince's Trust is very critical to this because um, what the Trust has learned over the years um, with the thousands of people that uh, the Prince's Trust has, has helped educate and employ through through the training they're moving to employment, they've worked with a lot of diverse um, communities around the world. So during that period, um, they've learned what works and what doesn't work. So what the Prince's Trust is doing with this, um, they've created a two-day taster. So um, they've learned from programs that have failed in the past that people would drop out of, of the training because they didn't like it or for whatever reason it wasn't for them and it wasn't a good fit. So instead of getting students in that have had nothing to do with maritime before, because um, that's a whole idea, we're going, we're going to give opportunity to people that may not have had that opportunity. Um, so they might think working on a ship is a great idea, but then they get here and they go, oh, this isn't for me, I, I get seasick. So um, the Prince's Trust is doing a two-day taster. So that two-day taster, the first day is classroom-based um, and there's a lot of uh, self-awareness, um, learning about each other indirectly. You know, when you go to a course and 
yeah, you sit there for the first few hours, you're like, oh, who's who in the zoo? Oh, I really don't want to put my hand up. Mm, do I have to answer that? Um, everybody's like that, whether we admit it or not. Um, so we're getting people to open up indirectly. And so how do we do that? So the Prince's Trust has come up with this amazing uh, framework. Um, um, enterprise skills uh, is what they use with the, um, the veteran courses, which works very well. Uh, but with uh, our course, um, they've got a series of exercises that they use um, to get people to communicate. So we'll learn, students will learn about each other indirectly. So for instance, um, there'll be a series of 30 or 40 photos of different things and I'll ask them to pick out the three that they like the most. Um, and then they get to talk about it. So indirectly we're learning about why you've picked the sunrise or fishing or movies um, without having to say you know, well, I like this because blah, 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 blah. Um, we're talking about something that's one part removed from them. And we've got Indigenous mentors um, involved with that program. Um, so we haven't just got, you know, um, white guys like myself saying, hey, this is what we're going to do. Uh, we've, we've actually got Indigenous people involved so that, because we want to provide something that's appropriate and, um, and that's going to add value. I mean, it sounds like it's such a comprehensive um program that you've pulled together and i know i can sense that it comes from a place of passion and i know that you know as a result you'll have better representation uh, of indigenous indigenous people uh, within not just the naval industry but across many many other industries because i just sense the power and gravitas and uh, depth behind this program so well done to you um in terms of in terms of the uh, princess trust it seems to me that they're supporting you an awful lot with this. How are you getting the 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 candidates, if you like, or the students or the delegates, what call them what you will? How are you getting them onto the program across the whole of Australia? How are you marketing this? How how are you getting the indigenous communities to to know that this is up out there? It's been a really big learning experience for me to learn more about Australia's cultural heritage. So, look, Australia has definitely changed a lot in the last 20 to 30 years, and, um, and you just have to Google Indigenous Australian history um, to see that, you know, we had a, a, a bad past. Right. Um, but we are trying to move forward with that as a country, and the government has uh, has done a lot to, to, to create a, a, a better pathway for Indigenous Australians. We've still got a long way to go, and that's why we really want to make this program work um, um, uh, badly because we want to make a meaningful contribution. Um, the relationships with TAFE and their Indigenous engagement team has really been critical to getting the program out to the communities. So TAFE um, have run with all the advertising for that for us um, and their Indigenous engagement team uh, with the communities is what's been um, uh, how we, we're getting the message out. So we've had 10 students um, uh, express interest in the course and we've had seven commit and actually enrol. So um, out of the 10 students, uh, we had two, uh, two females and eight males, ranging in age from 19 to 35, So, which is great. That's really good. Uh, and I wish you all the best with this program. I mean, it reminds me of a similar program that we're pulling together here in the UK. We've just devised, and I've, I just got an email before I jumped on here from the person who's helping me uh, design the program. We've 
just completed the design element of our program, which is going to be geared towards uh, young people aged between 14 and 18, all of those who are in foster care or are in children's homes, you know, the most disadvantaged children out there, but to teach them uh, leadership skills that the general population won't be exper- uh, won't be exposed to. So really teach them some deep leadership skills, uh, relationship building skills, uh, emotional intelligence skills, so that we can catapult them into positions of leadership uh, going forth. And I just think they'll make incredible leaders because they've come from such a different background. So this is my way of saying, you know, we need to break away from the groupthink mentality and the echo chambers that we create. And and I think the outcome is going to be very, very similar to yours in so much as if the people who go onto your programs take advantage of those programs and do well as a result of the application of the learning that they get on your programs, they will go on to become incredible leaders. There is no doubt in my mind they'll go on to become incredible leaders. Because one of the issues, and I think we we talked about this when we were at Windsor Castle, when you look at politics, global politics, not just in your country or my country, you seem to find uh, leaders with, in politics who all seem to be of a similar type. Therefore, they speak a similar language. Therefore, no surprise, they come up with similar sort of uh, ideas. And there's a lack of creativity, a lack of innovation, a lack, a lack of the appetite for risk to do things in a different way. Uh, and I think uh, it's incumbent on people like you and I to create these leaders of the future who are who think in a wholly different way. And obviously, if you think differently, you'll do something different. If you do something different, you'll get a different outcome. And I think it's about breaking that, don't you think? Most definitely. Um, and I'm a firm believer that you are a product of your environment. You can't expect someone to mm. do something if they don't know how to do it. So how do you get them to, to do something different? It's training. And, and I always say training leads to education. They're two separate things. You can train somebody, but to educate somebody is very different. Um, and that's where we have to tap into learning styles. And that's where culture comes into it. Because um, yeah. um, depending on your cultural background is going to affect many things in, in how you actually take something on board uh, you know what you do with it whether you like it you don't like it so we really need to understand more about the people that we're working with and the behaviors that underpin uh, our environment to get the most out of people so um for, for leadership for me is, is more about creating a personal connection with somebody um and and again there's you see i've i've, I've been fortunate or unfortunate depending how you, you, you look at it um to work with some horrible leaders and managers and <laughs> you some me incredible people um, so what I've learned over that period of time, and I've made my own mistakes and learned the hard way on, on a few occasions, um, you get so much more out of people if you show them respect. And respect can be as much as say, hey, mate, how are you? How are your kids? What do you do on the weekend? Um, rather than just jumping and having to go at them straight away. I once had a senior uh, leader say to me, hey, Cole, you're great. You're great. We can move you into any department and you resolve whatever issue is going on in that department. You turn that department around. But my one issue with you is you never seem to grip people. <laughs> so I asked, uh, does that mean that my performance is suffering? He said, no, the performance is good. He says, you just don't seem to grip people. Uh, and it, I had to smile because it was almost like, so what you think is a good leader is somebody who can go around shouting and yorping at people and, and forcing people to do certain things rather than inspiring people to do the right things. 
Uh, and and this is this is the mindset that we need to break when it comes to leadership. Leadership is a position of authority, but with it with it comes great responsibility. And building that personal connection, as you talk about, is so critically important. Most definitely. And there's a time and place for raising your voice, um, but um, I find that if you're courteous and you apply to somebody, you can tell someone to do something, or you can ask them to do something. Um, I'm fortunate that I. I'm able to build rapport with most people because um, um, I actually take a personal interest in them as an individual. Um, and it's not hard to do that. It takes you 30 seconds to ask someone how they are or what they did, they did on the weekend. And you get to learn more about somebody. Uh, and when you have a connection with somebody, and it can be a deep connection or it can just be a, you know, a passing connection, um, but they feel valued. And that's one of the things that the Navy really taught me is um, that Every person is, in, is important as the next. doesn't matter what your job is, um, but you have to be valued as an individual and as a person. So I, I try to, well, I don't try, I do that on a daily basis. So um, um, behaviour is another thing that is a big thing for me. So we can all have an incredible impact on someone else's behaviour outcomes by how we conduct ourselves. So um, I might be having a bad day, but if I'm rude to someone or I cuss at somebody, that's going to affect their day and that's going to affect their response to me. It's like it's like uh, listening to somebody who is a mirror of myself. You know, I whenever I took over any department, one of the first things I used to say do was get the senior leadership team together and said, you know, when you're talking and you're you're out there, you're having a conversation or you're saying something, always be mindful of the language that comes out of your mouth or the tone in which the 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 the, the words are used because. To you, these are just words, or they may just be a sentence or two. To people who are listening around you, they are almost the word of God because they know that you have that level of power over them. So if they are good words and you say them in a good way and you make people feel good, they will take that away into their families and they will have a, a positive outcome on their families. If they are bad and they make the person feel negative they will take that into their families and you are infecting their families with negativity and that is the power of leadership and that's the power of your words yeah definitely definitely cj i could talk to you forever it's just incredible to listen to your wisdom and the incredible work that you are doing uh with the indigenous community uh, uh of australia through the sea heritage foundation congratulations on your new post you clearly 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 deserve it uh, with all the passion that you've demonstrated uh, i wish you every every success as president of the foundation now uh, we're going to stay in touch anyway because we're both members of uh, a very beautiful society um but i wish you all the success thank you so much for being on the podcast and i look forward to our next catch-up thank you very much for having me i really appreciate your time thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed this podcast please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content and of course connect with me on linkedin take care have a great day